to the truth of who Jesus is and show you his glory, his greatness, uh, the weight, the reality of who he is so that you would believe him and trust him. See, out of all the things Jesus did in three years, John said, here are seven that you need to see to understand who Jesus is. So this one's, this one's shorter, but, but significant. So let's, let's read it and pray. This is the word of our God. After two days, Jesus departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is God's word. He has spoken to us today in love. Uh, This word is true and trustworthy. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would grow our faith, you would mature our faith, uh, that you would test and refine our faith this morning. Um, And so often you do that through hard times. And so while we come um, weighed down it, I I pray that you would show us the glory of Jesus that would change our suffering from being unbearable to a light momentary affliction compared to the the beauty and greatness of what's to come in the new heavens and new earth. So this morning, may your spirit be at work in our hearts that we might mature in our faith to trust Jesus, the one whom you sent for us. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So are you familiar with the story of how Louis Zamperini came to faith? Uh, Louis Zamperini was... um, an Olympic athlete before World War II in 1936. He ran in the Olympics. He's a, he's a New Yorker. He, he was born in Olean, New York, so he's out in western New York. If you've heard of St. Bonaventure, uh, that, that's where Olean is. Um, for, for Louis Zamperini, he didn't grow up religious. He didn't grow up Christian. He didn't grow up around the Bible. Uh, so his interactions with God actually began, from the, similar to this man, from a place of desperation. Because he ran in the 1936 Olympics, uh, came up short. He, I think he came in placed fifth, so he, did, he didn't medal, and he had high hopes for 1940, and, and then World War II happened. And so he enlist, enlisted in the Air Force, and he found himself stuck on a raft out adrift in the ocean 
because their search and rescue plane had mechanical troubles and went down. And they went down the water, he passed out, um, being dragged down by the wires. He says he woke up, somehow had come loose from the wires while passed out and was able to swim up to the surface. So that was a miracle number one. (laughs) But then he spent the next 47 days just drifting, dehydrated, longing for rescue. And it was here on this raft that Zamperini was not a Christian. He finally started praying. He does what we all do when we're desperate. Lord, I will do whatever you require of me. Should you save me? Should you help me? Should you answer my prayers? Um, And that was what it was. God, if you will save me, I will serve you the rest of my life. I will serve you forever. Well, eventually he drifted ashore into enemy territory, went into prisoner of war camp, and um, went through all kinds of trials, and it didn't meet Jesus till after after dealing with PTSD and, and came to faith under, under Billy Graham's ministry and became an evangelist uh, for forgiveness. But his, his faith began in, well, we would, it's terrible, it's torture, right? A terrible place. It was from a place of fear, pain, and desperation. That's how he came to faith. Right? And this is the same kind of context that Jesus uses to grow faith in this royal official's life. And to to grow faith in the life of his whole household, right? It was from that, this is the big point today, that faith is developed and strengthened so often when life is hard, when life is painful, when we're we're led into situations and trials that we never would have chosen for ourselves, and yet God is able to use that to grow faith. So it's in the thick of anxiety and dread where where we grow, where we mature, or or we don't, right? But that, that's how Jesus sovereignly works. Right? That, that pain, according to C.S. Lewis, right? this is God's megaphone to wake up a deaf world. Um, that, that pain demands you pay attention to it. And, and when God has your attention, it's when we're, we're willing to hear his voice. And so as we get ready to, to meditate on this this morning, it's a good question to ask. What, what hurts are you bringing into God's presence today? What anxieties are you carrying? What's weighing you down because I'm hoping we'll see this morning that pain is the soil in which God grows real life-changing faith. And so let, let's look at how that works. Let's look at how faith is developed by Jesus here. And point number one is, is we have to see that there, everybody in this room, even now as a longtime Christian, you have barriers to belief. You have things that hold you back from trusting. Um, and that's the surprising context for the second sign. It's it's opposition, skepticism, um, maybe even rejection. Because right? if you look at verses, verse 43, we're picking up after Jesus had gone through Samaria and led this woman to faith, and, and she went home, and loads of Samaritans had just come to faith. It was a surprising thing. They believed because of Jesus' word that he is the Savior of the world. And, and John says, now he's going back home. He's going to his hometown, to Galilee. And he, he notes with irony that a that a, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And so it's a weird transition, but it's setting you up to hear the context of, what, of, of this miracle that John wants you to see the irony of the Galileans welcoming him. Yet they welcome him because of what he does, not because of who he is. Right? They're, they're all about Jesus when he serves them right? with the miracles, 
but they're not about Jesus who confronts them, who challenges them. I mean, this is, this, you're supposed to um, f- remember chapter one, that Jesus came to his own and his own people, did not receive him. This is setting you up to see an ironic welcome in Galilee, that, that they say, yeah, Jesus, we're glad you're here, but they just want to use him. Right? And so you're supposed to look at this approval with skepticism, because when they look at Jesus, they go, oh, here's the guy who, who kept, a wedding, kept the wedding party going, right? Jesus is just a walking open bar. This is great. Uh, you know, he's, he's doing miracles. He's healing. That we, we want that. They're not thinking about the Savior of the world. And we know that because, right, Jesus says in verse 48 to the official, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the you there, there should be a little note in most of your Bibles, is plural, not singular, right? It's not just this guy's problem, it's the whole culture, the whole community. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all won't believe. And so the accusation that Jesus, it it sounds uncomfortable, right? Jesus, why would you be so abrupt with a, a grieving father who just, just wants his son to be healed. He's, he's trying to grow faith in this desperate situation, right? And so Jesus' accusation to this man as representative of this whole community is you only get religious when you need something. Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. You won't take me for my word. Right? There isn't a heart overflowing with gratitude for the giver. They just want the gift. It's that idea. And so there is a large barrier to to real saving faith, to life-changing faith, in this culture embodied in this royal official. Um, And that becomes a theme all the way through the New Testament, that every human being, whatever culture you are from, has reasons have, have some kind of faith that keeps you from believing in Jesus. Right? You believe something that's wrong <laughs> that Jesus needs to correct. And the reason you believe it is because it's the community you grew up in. This is the family you live in. And you don't know any different until Jesus says, hey, that's not right. right? That you have a belief that makes a lot more sense to you um, than it does... <laughs> than it does in the scripture because of your community, because of your culture. All right. So, in the case of this, of, a, of Galilee and this official, they want miracles, they want miraculous solutions to their painful problems, they want belief on their terms, uh, they want God to make them strong, and it's a cultural belief. It's a, it's a very ethnically Jewish way of looking. Prove yourself to be like Moses. Do something amazing, right? That's That's the Incredibles. Do something incredible. But because of culturally taught expectations of God, uh, who Jesus is, they they, they really struggle to to believe. That's the accusation in this, in verse 48. So the question this morning would be, what what barriers to belief are you bringing to the table? Right? There are things, our whole understanding of God, it needs to continually be reformed, uh, to, be, to be sharpened by who Jesus is. And so in our culture, right, the, 
the sociologists, sociologists, there we go, uh, talk about this thing called moral therapeutic deism, which is not too far from, unless you, there's signs and wonders, you won't believe. And moral therapeutic deism is this idea if there is a God, he's good, he's kind, he's loving, and because I'm a decent person, he sh- he's going to help me. Right? And because he exists to help me and I'm a decent person, to have Jesus confront you and say, no, your heart is selfish, more selfish than you would ever dare admit, it's going to be really hard to hear the gospel. That's a barrier to belief because you have a misconception of who God is. Right? If you believe that God is love, which is a very biblical belief, but if you go, God is love and therefore my God can't get angry, right? where do you get that idea from? That's a cultural belief, a cultural barrier to trusting Jesus. I mean, there are cultural beliefs that work themselves out, not just in the larger community, but even in individual faith communities and churches. Um, so just think of how this works. So you, could walk in, you could spend your whole life in a church, a legalistic, fundam- fundamentalist-type community, and, and believe that really bad experience I had in the church, that's Christianity. Where it's all law and no grace. And so folks go through that pain, and rather than say, no, what is the truth? Who is Jesus? They deconstruct and throw Jesus out with the bathwater, so to speak. So the point is, this morning, everyone has a barrier to, to belief. And everyone, including Christians, have the same. We need to mature. We need to grow up. As Peter says, your faith is tested by fire. And so we, our faith has to grow to become more in line with who Jesus is and what he says. And so verse 48 is a confrontation, spoken in love. But Jesus says to, to the, his audience, y'all believe this. That contradicts with who I am. It's that idea. that Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Just compare that to, the, to, to Thomas. Right? Blessed are those who believe without seeing, which would be anyone who did not put their finger in Jesus' wounds. Right? So let Jesus confront you. Right? This is a call to let Jesus' words shape the way you see who God is and what your expectations of him should be. Right? Now, let's zero in a little bit further here. If you look at the royal official, he's already, he's already demonstrated some faith, right? For him to hear in Capernaum that Jesus is in uh, Cana, that's a 25-mile hike. So he has already said, okay, here's Jesus. He's my only hope to heal my dying kid, right? And he walks 25 miles full of anxiety and dread out of love for his son, only to have Jesus say, Unless you all see me do something amazing, you're not going to believe. Right? I mean, at this point, it seems like his view of Jesus is that of some kind of magician um, that just needs matured. And so Jesus uses his pain, his anxiety, to teach him the nature of faith, what trust is. And so, again, 
What is it when you read the, have you had this experience where you read the Bible and go, I don't know if that's true? Have you stopped and looked around and say, the reason I wonder why that's true is because my parents told me something different, my friends think something different? That's a very culturally informed, narrow way of looking at it. Right? If, if Jesus really is Yahweh come in the flesh, the Lord of the Old Testament become human to rescue you, he has to rescue us from our false ways of thinking. Right? And so, there's other kinds of alternate beliefs. Right? We looked at the Samaritan woman last week, that much like our culture, she lives for the, lived for the affections of men, and for her, life wasn't worth living without a guy in her life until she met Jesus, and he had to correct her that there is something more satisfying than the affections of another person. Uh, in this context, in the royal official in Jesus' hometown, it appears to be love of power, right? something miraculous. What will Jesus do for me? could be all kinds of other things. Maybe I'm just worship being in control. Right? I'm too busy to get serious about religion. Or maybe we love money and live for the freedom it gives. Maybe we have, you have philosophical questions about the truth of Christianity, but I'm hoping I'm persuading you with this morning that all of those things are shaped by the community in which you grow up in. And Jesus' plan is to use the evil you're experiencing, the hardship you're experiencing, to mature your faith. And so whatever your objections are, let John show you the glory of Jesus, how he graciously confronts this father's barrier to belief. Sure, it sounds abrupt, but Jesus won't let him leave with just a, how would you put it, with just a consumer transaction. Right? Jesus, I come, I ask, you give, and then I walk away never thinking about you again. He's not going to let him do that. And so, let's, this is point two. Look at how Jesus overcomes our barriers to belief. I'll put it another way. Let's look at how Jesus grows the faith of this father in the soil of anxiety and dread. Right? And, and here's, here's the point. For, I think, almost every Christian, God has used some kind of pain or disappointment to get you to seek him to get your attention. Not everybody, but at some point we all say, I have a need that this life is not meeting. Perhaps there's a God. Right? And that's the story of this royal official. Uh, the, the Greek word that describes what he is, he's, he's some kind of royal, he has some kind of royal authority. Right? Sometimes that word can mean ruler, most likely it means he, he's, he works in King Herod's court. In King Herod's court, right, this is a place of money, power, comfort, and influence. But what he has to discover, like we all have to discover, is it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, how comfortable you are, money and power are useless when you're faced with something you can't control, which is sickness and death. Right? You know, so one commentator says, how vain, how vapid, how useless was all the, the show of court life when at home, the only thing he could hear were the wild and delirious cries of his son whom he loves 
crying out in pain from a raging fever. Right? He's being confronted with his weakness. And so this pain gets this guy to seek Jesus for help. And this seems to be the way so often God works in our life, is when things go not well, that awakens us to our need, to what it means to be a creature, and we say, God, help me. Right? And so what has been disappointing you? This is God's instrument. He's, he's able to use what we would say is not good to grow your faith, to mature you. Right? Is it pushing you towards Jesus is, is the question. Because right? I would argue that pain and sickness and suffering, they kind of rip the veil off of what life is actually like. Uh, to, quote, to quote John Updike, the, the author, he says, a, a world without God is a horror show. It's a horror movie haunted by death. Right? And so what pain does is it gets us by God's design, to seek his face, to seek his comfort, to seek his power, to get us to pray, to get our eyes off ourselves and to look up. And so what John has done is Jesus grows faith in different ways. So this is, we're, we're narrowing in on one way he works, right? In, the, in the, the life of the Samaritan woman, she wasn't looking to get religious at all. Jesus sought her. But here we have Jesus having someone seek him and Jesus isn't content with him just seeking his face and be outwardly being religious. He wants him to have a real experience. And so he corrects him. And so, yeah, God uses pain to grow faith in us. And then he goes on to correct our simple understandings of faith. He won't let us stay simplistic in our faith. Right? Unless you all see signs and wonders, you won't believe and what's interesting is, right, Jesus doesn't run down to this man's house to honor his request. He says yes and no in his answer. <laughs> yes, I'll heal your son, but I'm not going to do it the way you asked. Why? I think there's correction happening. To seek Jesus for who he is, the Lord of death. He has sovereignty to intervene in sickness. Right. And so maybe I should put it this way. Um, everybody, when you start your journey of faith, comes to Jesus for all kinds of selfish reasons. Right? God, my life is a mess. Fix this. You need to fix that. But one of the first things you're going to find out is Jesus is going to um, challenge your selfishness. He won't let you stay in love with yourself. Right? We tend to run to Jesus, who is the Son, and demand that he revolve around us and our time, on our terms and our timetable. And Jesus refuses to dance like that because he's the king. What he does desire, as we see, and we're going to see again and again in John, is he desires that you would trust him on his terms with a real saving faith. And so he doesn't let you say, stay simplistic with your faith. You have to grow up. I have to grow up. And so what does faith, what does biblical faith look like? Well, uh, the reformers used three parts to describe what faith is like, right? You got to have some basic information. 
Right? For you to trust Jesus, you have to have some idea of who he is and what he's able to do, what promises he makes. Right? You've got to have some, some kind of, something in your head to act on. So part one of faith would be information. You've got to know something about who God is. That's what the Bible's for, is to give you information. Um, but second part of faith is you have to agree that it's true. Right? That Jesus is telling you the truth about yourself in this world. And then the, the third part of faith that they talked about is commitment. You have to, there's an action involved that, that demonstrate that you really do believe this. This is not just a cool idea or an abstract philosophy in your mind. Um, You've got to live out your faith. And so on the one hand, Jesus is going to work on the information in this guy's head. Go home, your son will live. Right? You know that he will heal, but he's going to heal on his terms. Right? And so the man believed Jesus' words. Right? So what's being communicated about Jesus here? That Well, one, Jesus has the ability to heal and the desire to do so, and I have to trust his promise now. He had to walk home 25 miles, at minimum an eight-hour hike, um, trusting that Jesus told the truth. Right? And so he moved from Jesus has the ability to heal, Jesus, I'm going to ask you for help, I'm going to assent to this information, and then he acted on it. He went home. Right? He would have had to stay overnight. He's not going to walk through the, through the night. It's too dangerous. So he would have had to have an, I would imagine as a father, a, a very sleepless night until dawn until he could walk home to where he then met his servants who could relieve his anxiety and say, your son as well. Right. And so you can see Jesus growing his faith. Right. You want me to come, I want you to trust me. You can see him growing his faith in the soil of desperation. Right. And the effect, of course, as Jesus grew his faith is when the servant met him and said, your son will live. The man moved from... Uh, just coming to Jesus for a transaction to believing Jesus' words, and that's significant. Right? So I, I believe. Right? It's in verse, let's see, look it up here. He himself believed in all his household. He believed Jesus' words. So that's the second sign Jesus did. Right before, here's how his faith progressed. Before the official had merely believed in Jesus' ability to heal, he goes home, taking Jesus at his word, his promise that he has actually done so. And he was stretched in the process. He grew up in the process. Jesus' power became personal. And so, this is how faith works in your life. This is how it works in my life, that, that we all have generic... We have some information about Jesus. And as um, anyone who's been around religion for any length of time is, is, you may say you believe something, but often life shows us that we don't actually believe what we say. Um, just because I have an idea in my head or I think Christianity is beautiful as an ideal, it's not until I actually have to forgive my enemies, so to speak, that I realize 
oh no, do I actually believe that forgiveness is something I can do or want to do? And so what Jesus does is he, he, the one who loves us, he takes what we know about him to be true, and he uses pain to make faith actionable. You have an opportunity to act on what you believe. Right? So, t- like again, take, take this idea of forgiveness. Um, it's something our culture generally finds beautiful when someone actually does it. Um, so you remember uh, that, the horrific tragedy in Pennsylvania when a man walked in, took hostages, um, in an Amish schoolhouse, and I think of five, five kids, five young, young girls, horrifically lost their lives. And what went viral about the story was this Amish community who forgave their enemy, forgave the, the murderer of their children. Right? For them, right, God forgives. God is a God of forgiveness. That's, that's an idea that's up here. And then a horrible evil happened. And that was the opportunity that God was able to use to teach them what faith looks like, which is to act out Jesus' commands to forgive. And it became real and powerful when they acted on it. And so they showed up at the murderer's funeral to support the grieving widow and traumatized kids. Uh, The community actually raised money for the murderer's family to support the children because of their belief. Belief turned to action. Right? I mean, that's faith. That kind of faith really can only grow in the soil of testing and trouble. It may not always be that extreme. It could just be I'm sitting on the north way and I just got cut off and now I really need to love my enemy. <laughs> Right? It could be as mundane as, as that. Uh, it could be as mundane as just choosing kind words to, to say to the people you live with when they're not being kind to you. Right? But something happens when you start to take the steps of faith where you move from information to, I agree this is good and true and beautiful, but now I'm going to act on it. And, and the effect of you acting on it and realizing that Jesus is with me and empowers me to obey, to, 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 to believe, it starts this whole cycle where all of a sudden you realize, no, Jesus is good. He keeps his promises. That's what happens here. And like, like the, the father experiences, now I believe him more. And so the next time he tells you to do something, you say, well, he is good. So there's this dance. This is how faith matures, where you move from information to action and from action back to information as your faith is confirmed and your faith matures because Jesus is able to use hard times to test and grow and mature your faith. And you can actually get to the point, like the psalmist says, Psalm 119, John will get there eventually in Sunday school, um, that it was good to be afflicted because there, that's when I learned your decrees. Verse 71. Last point here, this will lead us to the table. We all have barriers to belief, and so often it's pain that Jesus is able to use to overcome those barriers, to to, to sharpen our understanding, to sharpen our faith, to move us to action. And so faith, then Jesus Jesus is going to use these hard times to help us grow in prayer. So what what can this royal official teach us about prayer? 
Right? It's, what's interesting is um, so far in the Gospel of John, you know who believes? Right? The disciple, the 12 disciples so far, they have a very immature faith, which we'll see. You have a bunch of Samaritans, a bunch of outsiders, and then you have this royal official, his servants, his family, his children. Right? And so already the community of faith is diverse. You have rich and poor, Jew and Samaritan, people who would not ordinarily hang out, much less get along because of Jesus. Right? But there are none of them so far grew in their faith or came to faith without struggling with pain and disappointment. The disciples, theirs is to come. So be, stay tuned, right? They're going to scatter when Jesus is arrested. Peter's going to have to see very humbly uh, that, that who he is is very far from his commitments. But the Samaritans come to faith because of one woman's disappointment with, in relationships, an anxious, grieving father, right, that transforms his whole household. And so I think it's helpful for us to look and say, how do you pray through pain? Right, and one of the things we learn is that prayer, or that faith often grows through passionate persistence. Uh, that, I mean, this father, he, he walked 50 miles, functionally in two days, to save his son, to go and pray, to go and plead. I mean, how would you pray in that situation? Right? You, don't, you don't stop knocking, you don't stop asking. You come with your tears and anxiety. You come as you are. Right? There's all kinds of parables that Jesus taught. There's don't stop. That's one of the, the, the clear teachings of Jesus when it comes to prayer. Knock, ask, seek. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you don't ask, you don't receive. And if you stop asking, you're going to stop receiving. Right? The, the part of what this man models for us is this emotional, bringing your emotions, your anxiety to the God who cares for you so that your faith might get personal. It's ironic that Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe, and then he does a miracle. You go, Jesus, what do you, how does this work? <laughs> but I think it's, the idea is you're encouraged to cast your cares, your anxieties on the God who cares for you to see that Christian prayer is about forming you as a person, about believing God's promises, where you, you pray and wrestle in relationship with God. But God isn't so uh, disconnected from our everyday life where you cannot pray concerns for the body. Right? You can pray for anything and everything that happens. Jesus doesn't say, stop. He, he tells you to pray, knock, seek, ask. And so the question would be is, do you, do you pray? Have you been praying while in pain? Even if it's something as simple as, Lord, you are my shepherd. I mean, that's what the Psalms are for. Right? I mean, for those of us who can't physically walk to, to meet Jesus bodily, right, like the gospel accounts, our faith grows and matures as we pray through pain, where we start to see, do we really believe that God will work all things for our good. Are we, are we content to groan, as Paul says, while we wait for Jesus to return and take away all of our suffering? 
We can tend to let the Spirit groan when we don't know what to say. No, we take the information we have about Jesus and we plead and pray those promises. Right? Now, what do you know about Jesus? We know more than the royal official. Right? Because he came to Jesus, the miracle worker. We know that we pray to a God who gave up his only son for us. A, a father who knows our our sorrows, uh, a God who became human, who became perfect through suffering, as Hebrews says. That the way we grow and mature in our faith, Jesus has already blazed that trail perfectly for us. Right? Because we know that this is the way God overcomes our barriers to belief. Uh, it's, it's through Christ crucified. As you see him keep his promises in Jesus, where you can say, no, he loves me, and that's why he's correcting me. Because right? at some point in your journey with Jesus, right, our faith has to mature and not be dependent on what God has done for us lately. Our faith has to rest on rock-solid promises, and all these promises have shown to be true and trustworthy when Jesus walked out of the tomb. Right? So look at Jesus. There you see his perfect faith, and our weakness at the same time. So if you're looking at the cross, as we're going to do, as we look at his broken body and, and we're going to drink of his shed blood, uh, you're going to see that, yeah, I'm selfish, but I'm loved. Right? And you can, you can pray in faith that he will work all things for our good, for the good of those who love him, because we know Jesus suffered, and nobody thought that was good, but it was through Jesus' death that God surprised everyone by raising him from the dead so that you too might taste and that resurrection and know that, that there is a future coming with no more sickness, no more sorrow. Right? And that kind of love allows you to trust Jesus even when he comes off as abrupt and corrective and saying, no, you're not thinking right. You're not thinking clearly right now. So if you're armed by the love of God in the cross and the gospel, right, here you see Jesus' glory, that he's willing to love, he's willing to serve, he's willing to heal. In the, in the resurrection, right, we get to see all, all things that's sad will come untrue. But to get to that great day, right, to get to that great day, Jesus is working to mature our faith now so that suffering doesn't become the reason we tap out. So that we can pray as we sung today, right? Think what Holy Spirit dwells within you. Think what Father, which Father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to have thee. O child of God, who can repine? Who can complain about that? <laughs> right. So may Jesus mature your faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus who speaks the truth in love to us even when we're hurting. And I pray for all of us who come with all kinds of disappointments, fears, anxieties, and that you would show us Jesus' glory, uh, that you would shine the light of his face in our hearts, uh, that we might see um, 
see the depths of his love for us even while we were yet sinners. So as we mature, Lord, may that faith be fruitful that others around us might see Jesus uh, and, and believe. And so, Lord, as we come to the table, I pray your, your spirit would be at work um, convincing us that you are good and you are for us. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.